Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. For the which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Let's pray together. Great God, be glorified as your truth is unveiled, open human hearts, reveal the Son of God, reveal Christ to us, show us yourself, show us your truth, lead us by the Holy Spirit into all truth. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. I've never attended any kind of pilot training, but I'm told that one of the big lessons to learn is that you must fly by the instruments. Our senses are very, very helpful, our five senses, but they're not always reliable guides. And that's why I'm told the most expensive part of a plane is the cockpit, and particularly the instruments. Thousands and thousands, sometimes even millions of dollars are spent on those instruments. And the pilot is trained to, rather than live by what they call VFR, visual flight rules, they are to learn to live by instrument flight rules, IFR. The instruments are right when the feelings are informing you differently. In an air show, when a pilot does the loop-de-loop, you've ever seen that, where they do incredible things, and you think, do they know what they're doing? Of course they do. Um, I'm told I've never done this, but I've never really had any question about it. I'm told that when a pilot does such a thing, his senses can play tricks on him. He may think he's headed up, when actually he's headed down. And he must live very quickly by those instruments, rather than rocket to the earth and, of course, be killed. All this to say, the Word of God is the instrument by which we are to understand reality. We walk by faith, not by sight. We could equally say we walk by faith and not by what is revealed to the senses. 
There are things that are taking place in your life beyond the realm of the senses. There are things happening in this service that are beyond the realm of the senses. If we could see as God sees, if we could just have our eyes open to see, we would be amazed as what is taking place. The devil is doing his thing, but God is doing his, his thing, and God is bigger, and God is among us. So we should live by the instrument. In fact, Jesus said it in so many words. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're to live by this as the instrument. This is the most amazing instrument. It's better than any cockpit. It's better than any instrument made by man. This is the instrument whereby we are to live our Christian lives by the word of God. Jesus said so. Matthew 4, 4. Luke 4.4, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, Scripture is the instrument we are to live by. I think I was about age eight, maybe nine, when my father told me a story. I was really behind in terms of the normal milestones of a child, walking and leaping and praising God, that kind of thing. And uh, wasn't speaking, hadn't even spoken a word, and I had passed the date when it was normal for a child to speak, and my mom and dad were becoming a little bit worried. I had not uttered a word. My dad was holding me in his arms in a place called Kerrystal Avenue in Chester, the first home I lived in, and suddenly, I'm told, my eyes brightened up, I smiled the biggest smile as if I recognized someone very familiar to me there in the room. I almost jumped out of my father's arms, so I'm told, and my father saw no one, but it looked like I was definitely seeing someone, and I was definitely thrilled and recognized someone, and I uttered my first ever word. My father Believe he was absolutely convinced, my father has passed away now, but he was absolutely convinced that I spoke out a name, the name of an angel. Now, he couldn't remember the name, but he believed with something of a passion that my first ever word spoken was the name of an angel. What do I make of that? What should I make of that? Well, I can't remember anything of the incident. I've only the strong conviction my father had about it. That's all I've got with that. But here's what I do with that. I put it in a mental file. We've all got these mental files, files in our brains somewhere where we categorize something and put something into that file. And I put that story in this category, things I don't know. I don't know. Over time, that file has become very, very big, very, very large. In fact, it's interesting, the pastor is the only person who has a job where it's actually right at times to say, I don't know. That doesn't work if you're fixing cars. If someone uh, presents their car to you on a Friday and you work on it on a Friday and then on a Saturday and after two days you get a call from the owner of the car, well, what's up with it? It, it never does it really work for a mechanic to say, you know what? I don't know. It's kind of a mystery. It's one of those things we'll find out in the suite by and by, but right now, um, that knocking noise you have uh, there, yeah, I heard it, but I don't know the source of it. I just don't know. That's not going to work. But a pastor, 
In fact, a Christian is going to many, many times say, you know what? I don't know. Now, there are many, many, many things we do know. There are things we can be sure of. When the Word of God states something, we don't need any other testimony. But there are things God has not revealed to us in His Word. He's given us all that we need for life and for godliness, but He's not revealed everything we could possibly know. The Bible is not a manual, manual about chemistry. It's not a, you're not going to work out trigonomics from the Bible. There are things in the Bible that are very, very clear, but there's also things that are a little bit mysterious to us, and these are things I don't know. What I should not do with that story is build some sort of doctrine on it. I'm special. Do you have that kind of an experience? No. Um, what I should do with it is file it in the I don't know what that was all about category. Now, I say all that because our doctrine, what we believe, what we teach, should only be built on the solid ground of what God says. 2 Timothy 3.16, we saw that last time. The Word of God, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. First thing mentioned, profitable for doctrine, the things that we believe. And nothing else is pointed to. God doesn't say doctrine and this, doctrine and that. Doctrine can be found only in the Word of God and be built on the principles of Scripture. God does not say it's Scripture and this, it's Scripture and that, it's Scripture alone. And so the Reformers were right, I believe, basing it out of the God-breathed Scriptures, what we read there, Scripture alone, the Word of God, the Bible alone is the Word of God. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. Now in our day, in the professing Christian world, and in the general public, people are deceived by experiences. You can go to a Christian bookstore or even online and find out about many who have supposed trips to heaven. But it's not just Christians who can be deceived by those things. When you actually look at what they're saying happened in heaven and you compare it to God's Word, you're troubled because you can't see what they're saying in the Bible. And therefore you should throw it out. Let God be true and every man a liar. But it's not only Christians, it's the new age. Out-of-body experiences are the rage. People taking trips out of their body, you know, and you kind of have to, so much of it is happening, you kind of worry about a traffic jam somewhere. You know, I bumped into someone on 39th Avenue. We happen to be on the same place, you know, same roadway. But Colossians 2 says this, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Have you noticed? These experiences exalt the person, make them feel good about themselves. Never do they come away from an experience saying, you know what, I bumped into uh, such and such and such a person out there and he told me to repent of my sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, that said, Everything's well with relatives, uh, all's good, you're doing good, just tweak a few things and you can become something of a master guru yourself. Very pride motivated. That's the source of all deception, pride. Colossians 2, 13, uh, 11 verse 13, Paul in another context writes this, For such men are false apostles, 
deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Listen to this phrase. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's not an angel of light, but he disguises himself as such. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Do you hear that? Even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. He's not going to look like the horrific monster he is. He's going to look like the real deal. He's going to try and look like God. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews and chapter 1. And in verse 14, in the context of Jesus being far superior to the angels, the writer says this, he writes this, Are they, talking of angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It's a question. And it's a question that's a a rhetorical question because the answer's not given, but it's assumed. Yes, in fact, that's what they are. They are all ministering spirits sent out. And these are, speaking of God's elect angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. We are to believe this scripture, but we're also to believe it along with all the other scriptures on the subject of angels. We're to believe this verse and every other verse. And so what is a good rule for interpretation is to view every verse in the light of all the verses, the totality of Scripture. Let me pause for a moment and say there are two prominent falsehoods out there. One, I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, Angels are cute little babies with wings. Um, You see pictures of that oftentimes, even in Christian circles. And I think, where are they getting that? It's just a tradition Uh, No, they're actually awe-inspiring creatures, majestic creatures, and should you see one, you're likely to try and worship it, unless you understand that's not God, and you shouldn't. In fact, that's what happened to John in the book of Revelation. He was so inclined to worship this magisterial creature in front of him that he started doing so, and the the worship had to cease. And the angel said, only God is to be worshipped. God only. Worship God. The other idea is that men and women upon death get their wings, so to speak, and become angels. And even at funerals, you hear that. You know, uh, right now, I'm sure, uh, my brother Lawrence, he's got his wings. Really. Can you show me that in the Bible? Well, no one's ever thought of going to the Bible because that's not the instrument they live by. Because they've seen it on some movie, it must be right. Hollywood is right, and there we go. But let me just say to you, human beings never become angels. Never. So what are angels? Our answer must be derived from Scripture, and I've labored that point, and I think it's actually right for me to do that. But when we go to Scripture, we find about 300 references to angels in the Bible. They're not on every page. Uh, Some parts of the Bible have more references to angels than another. It's interesting, Luke uh, of the four Gospels mentions angels regularly. You read it with that in mind, you think, wow, he, he, he believed in angels. You know, you can't get past the third chapter of our Bible without believing in angels. In fact, it's there in chapter 1, they're just not mentioned. When God made the heavens 
and the earth. That included the realm of the angels. But Satan, in the form of the serpent, is a fallen what? Angel. Then in chapter uh, 3 continued, what God does is he calls for an angel to guard the way to the Garden of Eden after they'd been kicked out with a flaming sword. That was not a cute baby with a little wing. That was a formidable thing. So these angels are described in Scripture as messengers. We know of the cherubim. Cherub is the singular. Cherubim is the plural. Seraphs, seraphim, you see that in Isaiah chapter 6, all around the throne. They're called spirits. They're also called principalities and powers. Two of the angels are given names. I know you know this already. Gabriel, which means the mighty one of God. And Michael, which means who is like God. I wonder if we can go in our Bibles back to John chapter 1. I want you to be reminded of something that is very, very clear, but it's good for us to be reminded of it. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, echoing the book of Genesis, where the first words were in the beginning. I'm sure John had that in mind as he wrote. In the beginning, verse 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We find out later in verse 14, that Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, pros God, face to face with God, in an eternal living relationship. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. As far back as you can go, the Word was already there with God. And he was God. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is something we've already seen as we go back to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of him as creator in verse 2. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through, through whom also he created the world. It's not the only place where he is... Uh, called the Creator. Now think about it. Jesus created all things. He therefore created Lucifer. He created him. And the idea is, he knew what he was doing when he, when he created him. He can handle him. I think so many have the idea that there's this duality going on, this war going on between light and darkness. We get it from Star Wars that there's light on one side and darkness on the other and they both have equal power and we don't really know who's going to win. If the dark side's winning, it's just for time till the light uh, balances the universe and all of that. No. There's no competition. God is in control and as Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. He can handle him. He's not been worried once. Oh no, look what the devil's doing. Never. We've often been worried. God has never been worried. You ever prayed and you just looked into the scriptures and you, you say, Lord, I need to trust in you. I'm worried. And you read, God says in some verse, you're worried. I'm worried. Things aren't going well. This year is not going well. I had to... Uh, 
downsized last week. We couldn't pay the light bill. Not at all. God is in charge and he's got everything in his hands. He's the creator. Jesus is the creator. He created all things, including the, 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 uh, the angels. Now, there are things we need to understand that can comfort us. One is, angels, including the devil, are not eternal. They're not everywhere present. The word there is omnipresent. No angel is omniscient, knows everything. No angel is omnipotent. Do you know, if we think about what finite is and then what infinite is, we can't even calculate that on paper. You know, this is the finite realm and this is the infinite. No, my, my hand has to go so far it leaves my body and travels at the speed of light for billions of years and I still haven't come to the end of what infinity is. The difference is not just the difference between one side of the Grand Canyon and the other side of the Grand Canyon. It's the difference between Earth and the moon and the stars and the universe and keep going. That's the difference between finite and infinite. Isn't that a comfort to know that God, who is infinite, is on your side? If God be for you, who can be against you? It's just finite. Everything else is finite. And God is infinite, and he's on your side. Hallelujah. I could get excited, but I'm in church. <laughs> the devil's not omnipotent. He's not infinite. If he's bothering you in Sun City or Peoria or Glendale, he's not bothering someone in China. He can't be at two places at the same time. God is infinite, and he can be meeting with us here as he's meeting with believers in Hungary and in Iceland and in China. He's everywhere present, and he's fully present everywhere. It's not like he has to give 2% of his attention to Phoenix and 3% to New York because it's a little bit bigger. He's giving 100% of his attention to us as we call upon him. He's infinite. It's mind-blowing. Now, the devil is none of those things, but he's well-organized and he's very formidable, but he's no match to God. Let me talk about elect angels. They're intelligent. They are not just dictation devices, robots. They have their own mind. They, in fact, have the ability to express emotion. We read of this in Job 38, verse 7. All the sons of God, referring to angels, shouted for joy. Luke 15, hear this, verse 10, Jesus said, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Angels are excited about repentance. By the way, I, I'm only half using humor here when I say, this means all the angels, the elect angels are reformed. What do I mean by that? Their understanding of salvation why? They believe in the perseverance of the saints, otherwise they wouldn't be shouting when someone repents. All they could do would be to say, well, so far so good. Right? Yeah, well, it's nice he's made a decision, but we'll see. No. When they understand genuine repentance has taken place, there's joy in heaven. He got one! He saved him. He will save. He that began the good work, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The angels get it. 
They really do. So, we understand that these things are true. Uh, elect angels are powerful. I, I just made a list of things that happened in both the Old and the New Testament. One angel, get this, found in 2 Kings 19, one angel destroyed the entire Assyrian army. How many people? Not 37, not 94. 185,000. One angel did that. What makes you scared? An angel. Two angels blinded the entire mob in Sodom. You read of that in Genesis 19. One angel clothed the mouths of all the lions when Daniel was amongst them. You find that in Daniel chapter 6. One rescued Peter from the jailhouse. Remember that? Elvis put it to song. Others did jailhouse rock, you know, and there it was. They were rocking as the, the thunder came and the noise came and the earthquake came. And God rocked them out. He really got them out by the means of an angel. Um, they are powerful, powerful creatures. Um, Gabriel fought against the prince of Persia, modern-day Iran or Iran. We're told that Jesus could have called on 12 legions of angels to whip him down, to deliver him from the cross, should he have only just given the word. Angels sustain. And they are sustained by God in holiness and in happiness, one man wrote. But he also wrote this, they are neither redeemed nor glorified in Christ. Hear this, no angel will ever be able to sing a song of redemption. Because no angel will ever be saved. Fallen angels, there's no plan to save them. Some people get upset when we talk about divine election, that God chooses some for salvation. But he could have left us all like he did with the angels. There's no plan to rescue them. Why is that? God didn't become an angel to save angels. He became a man to save men. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Hebrews chapter 2, we're in chapter 1. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps. It's not angels he rescues. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. God became a man to save the sons of men. Hallelujah. Thank God. Jesus didn't take on the nature of angels. Some people wonder about life in other parts of the universe. I'm not sure that's true because should there be sin there, Jesus is now truly God and truly man. He would also have to become truly alien somewhere to save the aliens. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Have you noticed? There's no saving grace for angels. There's no forgiveness for angels. Jonathan Edwards once said this about them. The angels are great nobles of the king's court, but believers in Christ are the king's great children. There's an intimacy that we have that the angels look on and are not able to participate in. They, they don't say, the blood of Jesus washes me and cleanses me from all sin. We can sing that. We sing the songs of redemption. Bavink, great theologian, once said this, angels may be the mightiest spirits, but humans are the richer of the two. 
beautiful thought. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was angels who announced it. In fact, let's go there, Luke chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Acts and Romans, follow on. Luke chapter 2. Verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Um, Again, they weren't just cute little babies here. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said, and so we go on. But notice that angels attended the birth and they made declarations about the birth of Christ. In the wilderness after Jesus was tempted, you remember, angels came and strengthened and supported him. They were present at Gethsemane. They provided no help, though, to Jesus on Calvary. Notice, as you read the four Gospels, there's no recollection or revelation that angels were there present helping Jesus. Why? Jesus was winning salvation by himself, by himself alone. Christ alone saves. I'd like us to go to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus here has risen from the dead, and we read of it in Verse 1 of Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, this would have been what we call Sunday, which is why we worship on a Sunday ever since uh, in the early church and throughout time. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Uh, Little cute babies can't do that. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. Yeah, you don't do that with little babies. Uh, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. He said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So they did things and they spoke things and they brought the message of God to those God directed them to. Uh, Go to Luke chapter 24. We were just there. Let's find it again. Luke chapter 24. This is Luke's account of the same resurrection of Christ. Look in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, again, this is Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Luke tells us they found the stone. Matthew has told us who rolled it. 
But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Uh, Obviously, not mere men in dazzling apparel. They didn't just get suited up at a great men's warehouse store. They were angels. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, that's the angels, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. So angels have a great task, but like us now to go to the book of Acts, because there we see something very, very interesting concerning a man called Cornelius. Peter is reporting back to the church what has happened amongst the Gentiles. And we'll just pick up the story for the sake of time in verse 12. Peter recounting this said, and uh, Acts 11 verse 12, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you'll be saved, you and all your household. Another translation reads this way, He will tell you words by which you'll be saved. Do you realize the good news is not good news unless it's told? The good news is not our life. The good news is news. It's an announcement. What happens in our life is like the ripple effects of a stone are thrown into a pond. There should be ripple effects if we've embraced the gospel. But the gospel is not our changed life. The gospel is the announcement of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, what he's done for sinners. How God loved this world in this way. He, Though he could have abandoned us and left us in our sin and rebellion, he loved this world enough to become a man. The second person of the Godhead became a man who was then born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and then died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And on the third day, rise again from the dead to be seated now at the place of all authority in heaven and on earth. And all who call on the name of the Lord, repenting and believing, are forgiven and given eternal life forever. That is the great, wonderful, good news. But the angel was not authorized to say this. No, he told the man, sent to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter, he'll declare to you a message by which you'll be saved. You see, God has given the gospel mandate to men and not to angels. So the angel, knowing the boundaries, came with the revelation told to the angel and then stopped and said, now you want the true good news, Peter, is where you'll get it. He'll tell you the words. What a privilege we have to share the wonderful gospel. We don't need to be angels to share the gospel. We can be fallen sinners and share this wonderful news about the one who saves fallen sinners. What a message. 
Finally, I'd like us to go to 2 Kings chapter 6. Keep your place in Hebrews, if you will. 2 Kings chapter 6. There's a passage here I've always enjoyed, not only reading but preaching. 2 Kings chapter 6. Give you a moment to find it. This is... uh, Elisha, mainly in view here. The axe head had floated in the opening verses of chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6, a great miracle of providence there. And then verse 8, we read this. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel. All right, get the picture. Syria's fighting Israel. Israel, the people of God. Syria, the enemy of God. The king of Syria was warring against Israel. He took counsel with his servants, saying... At such and such a place shall be my camp. In other words, this is where we're going to set up. This is where our camp's going to be. Do it. I've said it. Let it be done. Verse 9. But the man of God sent to the king of Israel. So outside of the situation, he was not privy to the words. He was not there when it was said. He was not amongst the council. He was not with the servants. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. So going directly to the king of Israel, he says, Hey, don't go that way. Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him. The prophet of God used to warn him, the king, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So it was a regular thing. The enemy of God, the king, was making his plans and God was revealing those plans to the prophet who then went to the king. And so this king of Syria was mighty upset. And look what he says, verse 11, because it happened not just once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who is... Who of us is for the king of Israel? Who's the collaborator? Who's the insider? Who's giving all the, all the things away, all the plans away? And one of his servants stepped up and said, uh, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. The place where you think, well, at least I'm away from everybody else. No one can hear me. Uh, God tells the prophet your words and goes to the king. And he said, go and see where he is that I might send and seize him. Notice he didn't really want a Bible study with him. He wanted to kill him. And it was told him, behold, he's in Dothan. So look at this. This is for Elisha, one guy. This is how the enemy saw him. So he, that's the king of Syria, sent their horses, plural, and chariots, plural, and a great army. And they're after one guy. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Picture that. Surrounded the city of Dothan for one guy. Now, Elisha had a servant. And to to use a little bit of uh, poetic license, he opened the curtains one morning and uh, looked out. Look at this. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, went out, behold... An army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant quite naturally said, Alas, I think I'd say that. Alas, my master, what shall we do? Look at the response. 
He said, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Look at this statement. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I don't think he's living by visual flight rules, but instrument flight rules. Look at this. More are on our side. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now what was with them? Horses, chariots, great army, and on the other side there are two. The man of God and his servant. And he's saying, his mathematics was this, they have all this, but we've got more on our side with our two. Hmm. Because it was more than the two. So look what Elisha prayed. This is what I just so want us to grasp. Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, come, bring your army, bring, bring, bring. We're in a bad situation. No, he didn't pray that. He prayed this, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Now wasn't the problem because he could see? He could see everything that was against them, all the horses and chariots and great army. But Elisha prayed he could see something that was not observable by the senses. Open his eyes. Lord, open his eyes. He didn't say, open my eyes, I need this. I know this. But for my servant's sake, open his eyes that he may see. And what does... The scripture then say, verse 17, as we continue reading, so the Lord came with all of his equipment and his arsenal, his house. No. What he did was answer the prayer. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. We'll stop there, but do you get the point? Rather than asking God to show up, he said, Lord, would you show my servant what is already real in the spiritual realm? If our eyes could see, what would we see? One of the reasons I get nervous before we have church is because of the size of our congregation because the size is thousands upon thousands upon thousands and millions and millions because the revelation of the book of hebrews is that not that heaven comes down in the service but earth goes up and we go to the heavenly jerusalem that's what hebrews 12 says you've come to not Sinai, but heavenly Jerusalem. And there we read, there are an innumerable company of angels in festal array. That happens every Sunday, every Lord's Day. It is the Lord's Day. And we say, well, there was only these many people here today and it was not that big of a deal. Oh, but if our eyes could see. If our eyes could could see. We're singing songs along with Moses and Abraham and David and Ezekiel and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Paul and Peter. We're gathered with all the saints throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and into our own time and it's 
this church that is invisible to us, but known by God. And that's where we go every Sunday morning. That's why we're here. We're gathered because we can't see that, but the instrument tells us that. That's what's really real. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews 1. I asked you to keep your finger there or something there, and I forgot to do that myself. Here we go. Look at this. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Would I be reading too much into this to think that the angels know who will inherit salvation? That God not only knows who will, but the angels do. Because their ministry is to serve those who are to inherit salvation. Wouldn't there need to be knowledge of who they are so that they could carry out their task? Interesting. Are they not all ministering spirits? And the point of the passage is, don't be caught up in angelology and caught up in thinking about angels and reverencing angels to the point that you're very close to worshipping them. No, no, no. They serve you in God's purposes. They're sent out to serve you. They're sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation. How come you're alive? The more I live, the more I realize we're fragile creatures. Uh, I shouldn't have made it first for, for the first two or three days of my life. Some of you have the same kind of testimony. At age six, that happened to you. You should have died here. You should have died there. You, some of you have given your angels a lot of work to do through your lifetime. But should you be an inheritor of salvation, it's because not only God, but through the means of angels, your life has been preserved till you heard the gospel and repented. It's mind-blowing. Jesus is greater than all the angels. He's the one to be worshipped. They serve those who will inherit salvation. God knows who they are, and it seems the knowledge is given to the angels. As we grasp this, let's finally go to Acts chapter 13. When it talks about inheriting salvation... God has an appointment for all his elect whereby they come to Christ. Do you know we're not saved because of the fact that we are elect? I'm being very precise with my wording here. We're saved because we repent and believe the gospel. Election just simply tells us that God knows ahead of time who those people are. In Acts chapter 13, we read these amazing words. Paul had been speaking to the Jews and was rebuked and not received by the Jews, and so he turns to the Gentiles. Look at this, verse 47, Acts 13, 47. So the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Look at this next phrase. It's just a casual comment from Luke reporting what happened. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
That's an amazing statement. Everybody? Yeah, as many. Was it more than the forecast? No, no, just the right number. As many. So if there were 71 um, that responded, was it 70 who should have and one extra got in there? No, as many. If 71 responded, then 71 were appointed. If it was 8,004, it was because 8,004 were appointed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Jesus said these same things in his words in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, 37. It's the giving of the Father, a group, to the Son that in time will cause that group to come to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Here they're coming. And everyone who come, everyone who comes, everyone who came, had an appointment. Let me finish with this. Sometimes we make appointments with dentists and chiropractors and doctors. And You ever call to postpone the appointment? I have. The appointment was made, but we didn't show up. That's not what's happening here. All who had the appointment made the appointment. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let me ask you, have you believed? When you walk through that door of salvation, one man, Harry Ironside, gave a wonderful illustration of salvation being the door where over the doorway it says, whoever will may come. And you walk through the door, you walk a couple of paces beyond the door and you look back at the door, now you've walked through it and it says chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Election is like the family secret. You come in and you find this was no shock to God. He didn't have to take you because you responded. Yeah, I don't really like her, but she said yes. You know, I've got to put up with her now for eternity. <laughs> he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And to get there, you might need some help. You might need some ministering to some of you might think, I, I, I need something today. And it could be right now, the ministry of angels is taking place in ways we can't see and is lifting you and strengthening you just as he did for Jesus, just as they do and did for Jesus in his earthly walk. God has absolute authority, absolute infinite resources when we need it, he'll get the help we need to us. May you be strengthened by the knowledge that the angels of God on your side are far more than anything on the enemy's side. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the revelation of your word. We ask that you would help us to live in the good of it and the knowledge of it, knowing that if God be for us, who could be against us? And he'll send his angels should we need it, lest we dash our feet against the stone. You'll make sure, if we are yours, we will come to you and we will always be yours now and forever. Thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen.